Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week, we choose an interesting new sports book, and we interview the author. But this week, for our last episode of the year, we're doing something different. Rather than one guest talking about the book he or she wrote, we have a bunch of guests talking about the sports books they've read and recommend. So, if you're looking for some good gift ideas for the sports fan on your shopping list, or for your own wish list, or if you just like a good book for the long winter nights, we have plenty of suggestions for you. Books on baseball, cycling, hockey, cricket, boxing, Gaelic sports, and football of all varieties. For the recommendations, we turn to authors who've been on the podcast this past year, as well as new guests sports journalists, blog writers, and other commentators on sports. Along with their recommendations for favorite books, we also talk about this past year's events and issues in the sports they cover. And, as we do each week on the podcast, we talk about some of the deeper lessons that we gain from following sports. I think you'll enjoy the conversations. We'll start the episode by looking at sports in England. The year 2011 in English sports began on a high note, with the cricket team defeating Australia in the Ashes series, and then the rugby team taking the Six Nations Championship. But things did not go as well after that. England's performance in the Cricket World Cup in the spring was up and down, and ended with a decisive loss to Sri Lanka in the quarterfinals, while the English team showing in the Rugby World Cup in the fall along with scandal off the field, has been widely criticized in the sports press. To get a sense of the year in English sports, I spoke with Tom Fordyce, the chief sports writer for BBC Online. Tom was in Australia for the Ashes, in South Asia for the Cricket World Cup, and when I spoke with him, he had just returned from New Zealand, where he had been covering the Rugby World Cup. So Tom, are you going to have a chance to stay at home for a while? (laughs) <laughs> I, th- I think I'll certainly be at home till Christmas, um, but it has been a year where I've, I've never actually unpacked my wash bag. Even when I've been home, it's, it's been a, a couple of days here and there. So, um, yeah, I, it's quite nice for them to, to rehang some clothes in the wardrobe. Um, and to, uh, <laughs> But it, equally, it's quite strange not to find your bed made each, each day and, and chocolates on your pillow. <laughs> you get quite used to the hotel lifestyle. <laughs> So I'll ask first about the Rugby World Cup. And uh, just about a week ago, a leaked report from the Rugby Football Union revealed, oh, just a bit of discord in the English camp. So <laughs> so when you were in New Zealand covering the, the tournament, did you have a clear sense of how bad things were within the English team? It, it was interesting because it was one of those stories that just developed and developed and developed. Um, and as a journalist, you're, you're sort of aware of most stories on two levels. There's the there's the official version of events, which is the one that you get presented at, at press conferences and 
the one the players are meant to talk about and they're briefed by the media managers. And then there's the story, the sort of the real story, if you like, which you're sort of aware of through your contacts and through what the players might tell you off the record. Um, and, and with England and New Zealand, it was, it was yeah, one of these stories that from a relatively small start gathered momentum. Uh, and with every passing day, um, it became the story became bigger, and it, it was also one of those ones that that the momentum continued once we once everyone returned home, um, uh, and, and it's still going on. As you said, there's been some revelations in the last couple of weeks about what was going on in um, in the camp, um, and the revelations themselves are, are, are shocking. But also the uh, the fact that the revelations have actually come out is quite shocking because these were supposedly anonymous um, or responses to an anonymous questionnaire. Uh, so the players could speak freely, but the RSE, the governing body for rugby in this in this country in in England, uh, does have a reputation as uh, as being as leaky as a colander. So it, w- it was no great surprise that, uh, that the stuff came out, but it, it did reveal a picture of a team that was divided over tactics, that was divided over personnel, that was divided over the quality of the coaching they were receiving and of the coaches themselves. Um, the, the surprising thing was that. The year has started so well for for English rugby. Um, they won the Grand Slam, uh, sorry, the uh, Six Nations mm-hmm. Championship, mm-hmm. Uh, and were denied the Grand Slam only in the final day with a with a loss to Ireland. Um, but there had been a point in that tournament when there was there was a lot of optimism that England could go to to New Zealand and genuinely contend for the World Cup, having beaten Australia home and away in the previous six months. Uh, there was a lot of optimism. So the fact that England did crash out in the quarterfinals to France, well beaten, and, and were in fact lucky to get past Scotland and Argentina in the group stages. Um, was a surprise at that point, but when you were aware of some of the things that were going on and you were aware of how the players felt about the, the management and maybe how the management felt about the, 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 the players they had, then it all made a little bit more sense. So after your year of traveling around the world to all of these these international sporting events, can I ask you to <laughs> to think back to all the games you attended, all the stadiums you visited, was there a particular yeah. moment that, that stood out for you? So not so much the result of a match like England winning the Ashes, mm-hmm. but just a moment while you were at an event, in the crowd, with the action on the field, uh, something that really struck you about about sports in the world today? Mm. That's, a good, that's a good question. And these are, these are always, I think they're also usually very personal things. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's, you know, we can appreciate the drama of sport and the great stories, but sports like theatre, you have to care about the characters, you have to be involved in in the characters. Um, you know, with athletics, for example, with track and field, if it was just eight eight, eight robots running around a track, you wouldn't care. Mm-hmm. But if you know about the personalities involved and what they've gone through in training, then you're drawn into their worlds and you you find yourself caring more about some than others. So the first one I'd pick. Um, was during the, the the athletics track and field world championships in in Daegu in Korea in August, um, and there is a a, Brit, a British runner called Mo Farah, mm-hmm. who uh, is of Somalian extraction and came to to Britain as a nine year old nine year old mm-hmm. refugee, um, and he had quite a difficult time when he first came to Britain because he uh, his father had, had only taught him three phrases in English, one of which was hello, one of which is uh, where is the toilet, please? And another one, which was "Come on, then." Mm-hmm. And he tried all three phrases out on his first day at school in England, and said "Come on, then." Accidentally to the local hard nut, got himself beaten up. Mm-hmm. So he's got this picaresque backstory, and he's he's battled a few demons, and he's finally got to the point this year where where he's one of the best runners in the world. Um, and in the ten thousand meter final, 
he seems to have his tactics absolutely right now. Um, these races, as I'm sure you know, are usually dominated by, by East Africans, by, by Kenyans, by Ethiopians, by Eritreans. And he seemed to have matched them all the way. And on the final lap, when the bell went, he pulled away. And we all stood up thinking, you know, this is fantastic. He's going to win it. Except he'd gone too soon. And he found himself hauled in mm-hmm. in the final few strides, agonizing. And was overtaken. Uh, and five days later, it was the final of the 5,000 metres. And a lot of people were thinking, Mo might not enter. He might be too tired. He might not have enough in his legs. But he entered. And the bell went for the final lap. And he was in almost exactly the same situation. He had the world's best athletes on his shoulders. And he put his kick in. But this time, he timed his, his kicks at the absolute perfection. And he came down the home straight, and he pulled away, and he pulled away. And as he crossed the line, the arms went up, and this look of disbelief and joy was written on his face. And when you knew what he'd gone through, and, and his backstory, and how, how difficult it had been for him as a child, and how hard it had been for him coming over from Somalia to, to West London as a child, and you knew you know, the fact he'd been a, tr- a slightly troubled teenager, and it at one point, it looked like he was going to waste his talent. Yeah, it did buckle down. When you knew all those things about him, uh, and you saw the fulfilment of this of this talent and this hard work, that was one of those moments where, as a sports journalist, you always try and be neutral. You always try and, why you try and understand the emotion, you try and remove yourself a little bit from it so you can talk and write mm-hmm. accurately about it. But that was one of those moments where that all goes out the window, and you... And without thinking, you're standing on your feet in the press seat, screaming and shouting and waving your fists and screaming him down the home line. All your, all your, all your neutrality, your supposed neutrality, suddenly gone out the window. Yeah, yeah. So with all your traveling this year, did you read any good books in the airport or on the plane? <laughs> I did. I've got, I've got a couple of favorites. I was, I was going, through, going through the list earlier. And the two books, the two books that I've enjoyed most this year, the relatively recent books, um, um, quite by accident, they both turned out to be cycling books. Uh, now, I do like cycling. I cover a lot of cycling. I do a lot of cycling myself. But there's something. there seems to be something about cycling at the moment. It's going through some, something of a golden age of, of literature about cycling. And I don't know whether this is because of the, the suffering involved in cycling. You know, the, the fact that the, the, the top cyclists have to put them through such brutal privations in training and in racing. It's one of those sports where the emotions are, are etched onto the faces of, of, of the riders. It's, it's a... It's a it's a visible exertion and a very visible pain they're going through. Mm. And there were two very, very good books uh, about cycling that I enjoyed this year. Um, the, first, the first of which was the, the autobiography of a, of a Scottish cyclist called David Miller, which is called um, Racing Through the Dark. And David Miller was an uh, extremely promising young rider. Uh, he um, won a, a stage of the Tour de France as a very young man. Uh, in his very early 20s, uh, and was always steadfastly against drugs, uh, against doping and cycling. And this is the story of how he gradually got lured into doping, um, uh, having having been a complete opponent of it, how he was gradually worn down, how he was initiated into it, how it made him feel, how it destroyed his his relationship with his family, how it destroyed his, his self-respect, and then how he came out on the other side, how he was almost deliberately got himself caught, um, how he... He rebuilt his life, how he rebuilt his reputation, how he rebuilt his relationship with, with the sport and his family and his, and his parents, and, and came out the other side as a... He's now back in professional cycling and is, is a, a huge advocate for, for competing clean. And what, what makes his book stand out is that a lot of sporting biographies or, or autobiographies can be, can be quite anodyne affairs. Um, and often it's the, either the ghostwriter or the, the, the sportsman himself struggles to to really take you into their world and engage you. 
And what makes this book, I think, an outstanding read is that is that you care, you care about David Miller, even if you didn't know who he was before. And he takes you into a world where you could get lost in the minutiae of professional cycling. And in, instead, you, you, find, you find yourself reading it almost like a thriller, even though you know what happens to him. You know that he tests positive, and you know that he comes back. Um, it's, a, it's a hugely engaging read. It's a, it's a terrifying read at times, uh, when you hear about how, how the doping happens. But there are moments when he describes when he first takes um, EPO uh, and pinches this fold of flesh and puts the needle in. It's the sort of thing that, that hair stand up on the back of your neck. Mm. Um, and when you read about how it, how it, you know, and he was, he was in jail, he, was, he, he lost his sponsors, he, he, he was estranged from his family and his friends. You know, this, this was a guy who was, who was absolute, absolute rock bottom, yet managed to, from that, managed to salvage something and, and, and rebuild a, a better life and a, 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 a sort of a better character for himself. It's, it's, um, it's a hugely engaging read, and it's, it, it is one which, which, uh, which grabs you from the start. And the other cycling book, now this, this, was, this was one of these books, where sometimes you get given a book by a friend, don't you? Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's a book coming out, you know all about it, and you look forward to it, and you pop down a bookshop or on Amazon, you, you pre-order it. And this was, this was the opposite. This was a book I hadn't actually heard of. But I, got, I got handed by a friend, and it's a book simply called The Rider by, by a Dutch writer called Tim Crabber. It's a, it's a very slim volume. Um, it's, um, it's probably only, I, I don't know, sort of 100, 130 pages, something like that. And it's, it's a fictional account of, of an amateur rider's um, one-day stage race. Mm-hmm. So relatively, it sounds relatively unpromising material. And it's, it's told in the first person, it's told in the present tense. And it turns into, into the most gripping read as this guy, from the moment he pulls up in his car and unloads his bike, goes, goes through this, this eight-hour stage race, um, describes, weaves into it tales of, of what sport means to him, of the, of the grip the sport has on us, of, of why we respond to competitive situations, why we do sport, of his rivalries. And, and through the tale of this single stage race, he, he seems, to, he seems to, to teach us all lessons or, or speak a lot about sport in general. It becomes a book which isn't just about a stage race in, in Holland. It becomes a book that speaks to us about why we love sport, about, about, about why we do sport, um, about the obsessive nature of, of people who do sport, about the obsessive competitiveness of it. Um, and again, does it in a way, I, I won't give away the ending, but, but does it in a way that has you, has you flicking through the pages um, at, at, as if it was a thriller. Um, and it's one of, those, one of those books that you get and you read um, and you straight away go out and buy it for two or three friends because you know they'll love it. And they might not be friends who are in the cycling, they might not be friends who are in the sport, but you know that they'll... That, you know that they'll they'll get this book and they'll enjoy it. And I should add that Tom is also the the co-author of a well-received book titled "We Could Be Heroes: One Van, Two Blokes, and Twelve World Championships," <laughs> which came out in two thousand nine from Macmillan. And uh, and he's laughing. And according to the word online, it is a it is a laugh out loud book as as uh, you write about different uh, alternative sports. So I'll put in a plug for that for you so excellent yeah that that, that was a lot of fun (laughs) (laughs) well thanks a lot tom for coming on the program and giving us your recommendations it's my pleasure in case you miss them i'll give you tom's book recommendations the first was the memoir of david millar racing through the dark the fall and rise of david millar published by orion in 2011 and the second book is by dutch writer tim crabbe titled the rider 
published by Bloomsbury in 2002. And the distance runner that Tom mentioned is Mo Farah, whose last name is spelled F-A-R-A-H. He does have a great story, and keep an eye out for him at this summer's London Olympics. For this book list episode of New Books and Sports, I wanted to find out what listeners of the podcast have been reading in the past year. Sports journalist Wendy Parker is a listener and Facebook friend of the podcast. After covering sports for some 25 years for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, she now contributes as a writer and developer for various online sites. She also shares a distinction with Chad Ochocinco, Novak Djokovic, and Rory McIlroy. This past year, along with these three, she was named in Sports Illustrated Magazine's Twitter 100, a list of athletes and commentators who offer the most entertaining or insightful tweets in the world of sports. In light of this recognition, I asked Wendy, what are her criteria for a good sports tweet? Um, I, I, th- I think I try to look for really good, relevant stuff. I know a lot of the sports writers who, who write a lot of these stories and what, and what they're writing about and what makes them good. Um, and, you know, it, I mean, I focus mostly on, on, on a few things that I covered in my newspaper days, college athletics, women's athletics, soccer, the Olympics, that sort of thing. But, but it, it's, it's broader than that. And um, I just, I, I like, I like the, uh, the curation aspect of it. I like finding good things for people to read uh, because I like reading them myself. And, I, and it's, uh, it, it's hard to kind of cut through a lot of the, uh, the noise that's out there on the Internet and find the things that you really like. So it's really a lot of fun just seeking all that, all that out. So two areas that you covered a lot in your career are soccer, both men's and women's, and women's mm-hmm. sports. And I want to mm-hmm. ask you about the, the Women's World Cup of this past summer. You, you've covered previous Women's World Cups, including the 1999 mm-hmm. tournament in the U.S. So in your mm-hmm. view, did this 2011 World Cup bring any notable development in women's sports? So, so years from now, will historians of women's sports look back and point to this World Cup as a, as a significant event in some way? I wrote this on my blog, and I think, I think the 1919 kind of laid the groundwork for something. We looked at, you know, in, in so much of, of, of one of my criticisms of uh, the women's sports establishment is, and I understand this to a degree, that everything has to be about a cause, and they've had to fight really hard to get where things are now. I certainly understand that. Um, but when you, when you sat back and you watched the great games that the U.S. women played, over in Germany in the semi, that great semifinal um, game against Brazil where Abby, Abby Womack had the, had the goal there, and they were dead in the water up until that point. And then, of course, the final was, was fantastic, too, even though they lost. It was great sports entertainment. People watched this. They were captivated, not because they felt like they needed to, but it was just great, riveting, dramatic sports entertainment. And, 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 and the fact that it was soccer and the fact that it was women, I think, were purely incidental. I think we've, we've, we've opened our eyes a lot in, in, in the last 15 to 20 years uh, about, about the accomplishments of women athletes and, and, and the d- development of soccer as a spectator sport in this country, where that's not, you know, of course, there are going to be people who, people who are going to ridicule it, but, but I really didn't hear that much. I mean, it really d- didn't seem to be as much as there might have been in the past, but it was great entertainment. It wasn't about them being these perfect, you know, role models, and, and, and they, are, they all seem to be very good people, but, you know, they have the brash 
goalkeeper Hope Solo, who, who basically was sent home by her own teammates from the last World mm-hmm, Cup. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and there was kind of a redemption story there. If you want, if you want to go, go that route, um, but there were there was there were great personalities. They were just human beings. They were just trying to be who they were, and they weren't trying to place themselves up as these purely perfect, you know, role models that, that women athletes, I, sometimes, I think, sometimes are unfairly asked to be by women sports activists. Um, they were just, they were athletes. They were, they, were, they were not just women soccer players, but they were athletes putting on great sports entertainment that really gripped a lot of people. Men, women, I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. And that, that's, what, that, that's the lasting impression that I have. So do you think the WNBA has been moving in that direction away from uh, the cause of women's sports, women athletes as role models to women's I sports? I don't know. As... They, they, you know. They have a new president, and she kept saying a lot of the same things that we've been hearing in the past, that, you know, we, we have wholesome role models. And, and it's not that it's a bad thing to be that. It's not. But... Um, you know, nobody really buys tickets to sporting events to watch role models. I and mean, you want people to be good citizens. You don't want them to get in trouble off the court, off the field, the way you know, in, in, you know, in, with the law. Um, but you, you, I mean, I think this is the big, the big gap now between women's sports coming out of you know 40 years of Title IX to making professional sports leagues uh, work, where you have to deal with market forces and, and all kinds of competition on television. You've, you know, it's got to be marketed as as a and run as a business and not just as a social cause. Now, I mean, the NBA, you know, it's it's not a big expense for the NBA, and, and David, as long as David Stern wants it, it's going to be there. But I'm not really hearing anything different about how they're how they're trying to um, market themselves than what I've heard in the past. I think it's too soon to tell you know where this new president is going to take it, but. You know, ultimately, what you know, what's going to happen? They are getting some good, some new sponsorship here and there, so I think that's a good thing. Um, but at some point, they're going to have to try to get more than just you know little girls and their families, and, and go after basketball fans. And I think um, they're, they're having some success with that. But after 15 years, I, I would I would have thought they would have done a little bit better with with, with that. Mm-hmm. So I'll ask you, what's on your book list? What can you recommend to us uh, that you've you read know, recently? It's, it's, it's funny you ask me because there's a lot of really good new books. I don't really read a lot of new books because because of the cost. But with e-readers and that sort of thing, I'm thinking of taking the plunge. But um, <laughs> there was a the main book festival here in Atlanta. There was a a, a woman a, a woman boxer who was uh, had had just written a book a memoir about her life in the ring called The Sweetest Thing. Her name is Misha Mert. Hmm. It's a really fun read. She's got a real good sense of humor, and uh, she says. Um, Boxing is my man, and you know the, the experience of women boxers is a lot different from men. I think that there's like a personal quest by women boxers, you know, that, that's a lot different from men who she says are trying to kind of prove their masculinity in some way, and uh, it, it's a different kind of a of, of a of a quest for women. Uh, and she was really funny and engaging. I've read a little bit about her. I've read a little bit of her book. Uh, it was really an unexpected uh, surprise. I never had heard of her or didn't know much about women's boxing, you know, beyond you know, Layla Ali and, yeah. and that sort of thing. But there's, but there's a really, there's a whole um, culture of women, women's boxing there that's been around for a lot longer than people realize. So I think I'm going to learn a lot once I get through through all of it. But it's, it's um, what I what I've skimmed through is, is really fun and entertaining. She's a very good writer and uh, 
and I, I love to, I love to read athletes who can who can write and have spent a lot of time working on that. So I'm, I'm I think I'm going to enjoy that as well. Wendy's book recommendation is the sweetest thing: a boxer's memoir by Australian journalist and amateur boxer Misha Mertz, published in 2011 by Seven Stories Press. And you can also follow Wendy on Twitter at W Parker. During the last year, we've heard from people who might be called veteran all-stars in the world of sports studies and commentary, award-winning journalists and distinguished university professors. For the book list episode, I wanted to get the recommendations of a promising younger talent in the field of sports studies. Shay Wood is a Ph.D. student at the University of Kansas, specializing in sports history. This year, he is in Zagreb, Croatia, on a prestigious Fulbright Fellowship to carry out research on his doctoral dissertation. His topic is Soccer, Society, and Politics in Communist Yugoslavia, focusing on the rivalries among the country's biggest clubs, Dinamo Zagreb, Hajduk Split, and the Belgrade clubs Partizan and Red Star. There has been quite a bit written in popular surveys of European football on the key role that fans of these clubs played in the violent breakup of Yugoslavia in the 1990s. So I asked Shea if that picture of Yugoslav football fans and nationalist division is accurate. Yeah, I think they, they really highlighted and uh, exacerbated those, those tensions. I don't know if we've overemphasized it, but I think we've focused on it solely. You know, we haven't really looked at other aspects of Yugoslav football you know, there were fans during the wars, especially in Croatia and Serbia, who, you know, went and fought. And uh, at the stadiums here in Croatia, in Zagreb and Split, the two largest, well, the bases for the two largest teams, uh, they have monuments to their fellow fans who, who died in the war. But there are other aspects, you know, and that's what I'm interested in looking at. So these more urban identities that people had as they, you know, came to the city. Um, I'm also interested in not so much the hooligan fans, you know, that, that go off to fight, but just ordinary fans, what it meant. Just sort of the narratives of the clubs. And, and so that's part of what's been forgotten, I think, uh, from the story. We really look at, like, you know, 1989 and forward, and that's really all we know in terms of the scholarship. So, so I'll ask you what's on your book list. What uh, recent books would you recommend? Well, since I'm focusing on soccer, most of my, my books are from soccer here. Um, I would say my favorite sports book, and it's a recent one, is Robert Edelman's Spartak Moscow. Um, so this came out a couple years ago, just as I was, you know, starting my own project, starting to feel around, you, you know, Yugoslav soccer. I saw this book come out, and uh, it was great. So, you know, Robert Edelman, he wrote a book earlier, and that's going to be my classic, Serious Fun. But in this one, he looks at Spartak Moscow uh, as, as a way to explore how... Uh, you know, Soviet citizens felt about living under uh, the Soviet state, right? Especially under Stalin and, and uh, Khrushchev. So he starts in, uh, even before Spartak is uh, created, so he looks at the pre-revolutionary period of football in, in Russia. Um, he looks at the urban neighborhood where Spartak's founders are from. And and, and then he moves, you know, he kind of gives you this chronology of, of football in, in Russia and uh, the Soviet Union up until the founding of, of Spartak Sports Society, I think, in 1935. And that's really the bulk of his book is about, 
it, what it was like to live under Stalin and Khrushchev. So 35 to 64, roughly. And what's great about this book, you know, I, I think, you know, soccer gives him and us a good way to look at how, uh, you know, just popular attitudes that people had towards, in this case, the state. Uh, so this is a common approach in, in soccer scholarship. You know, what, what does uh, football or soccer reveal about uh, society? But he does it in a great way. He's a great writer. Um, I think, you know, Spartak Moscow gives him a great story because, you know, the founders are born before the creation of the Soviet state. And I think one of them outlives it. So there's this great uh, continuity there, except for, you know, of course, the 12 years that they spend in the gulag, uh, which only adds to this, uh, the mythology of Spartak Moscow is the people's team, right? And so when he was there uh, studying in Moscow in the 60s and 70s, he'd always go to these matches, and, and they just happened to be the Spartak matches. And people thought of Spartak as the people's team, right, as opposed to Dinamo, who was the police team, uh, and then there was also the army team. And so his big argument, uh, you know, is that cheering for, for Spartak was a way that uh, citizens, especially males, could express some dissatisfaction with the Soviet state, with the absurdities of living on, with the fears of, uh, of, a, of an oppressive uh, a police state. And, and, he, and he, you know, demonstrates that, demonstrates that pretty well. Uh, so that that's why I really like the book, um, and you know, if so, it kind of follows uh, the trend of other books. But because it's you know Soviet society, he's able to tell a different story. And of course, you know, he doesn't necessarily buy into the myth of Spartak as the people's team, uh, but it's definitely a myth that uh, had strength and that people believed in. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the, the, the Starostin brothers, the founders of the club, they had their own connections in the party state you know they had their own friends and musicians actors and things like this so um it's not a as tidy of a story as is as presented you know in the popular imagination but uh it was a space where people could make choices they could declare their own loyalties so I, no I, re- I really like that book i would say that's my favorite sports book so far and probably because it's so close to what i'm doing right now yeah. yes the other book that i I just came across this over the summer. It's called Soccer Empire, and it's by Larone Dubois. Um, so his, his, the subtitle, subtitle of his book is The World Cup and the Future of France. And what he's exploring in this book is sort of the legacies of empire in France. You know, he's dealing with issues of racism. Uh, he's dealing with sort of, you know, what, what, is, what does it mean to be French? So, so a national identity in France you know, ideas of a diversity. And he, he kind of breaks his book up into three parts. I think the best part is, is the opening, where he's most familiar with the history of, of the French colonies. He looks at how the French empire introduced sports into the colonies. Um, and then he gets into how, you know, the locals appropriate the sports, create their own societies, their own clubs, their own tournaments, and, and sort of turn it into a resistance tool, right? A tool of resistance against the French empire. But, but the, you know, the two big personalities in his book are two uh, French soccer players. He's looking at, he's interested in two uh, World Cups, the 1998 World Cup when France wins and the 2006 World Cup where Zidane famously headbutts uh, the Italian defender, uh, what is it, Materazzi. Um, so he's, 
So he's looking at these uh, this legacy of racism. He, he sees 1998 as sort of this moment where, uh, you know, all of France gets together, you know, because most of the Fr- most of the players on the French national team at that time don't look, well, they're not white French boys, right? Either their parents are from the colonies or, they're, they're, or the players themselves are from the colonies or former French colonies. Um, so he's interested in how this sparked discussions of diversity and how 1998, when France wins, is sort of, this moment where it's kind of a turning point in in the French imagination of what it means to be French. For the reader interested in the history of European football, Shea's recommendations are Spartak Moscow, A History of the People's Team in the Workers' State by Robert Edelman, published in 2009 by Cornell University Press. And the book by Laurent Dubois is Soccer Empire, The World Cup, and the Future of France, published in 2011 by the University of California Press. From soccer history, we'll turn to contemporary soccer. For many fans of the game, a favorite part of the week is the World Football Phone-In, broadcast every weekend on BBC Radio 5 Live. Fans from the UK and from around the world call in with questions on football happenings on the continent, in South America, and North America. Handling the questions on Major League Soccer and the CONCACAF region is Sean Wheelock, who began announcing broadcasts for MLS at its start in 1996, and who has been reporting on the league and on world football for ESPN, Fox Soccer Channel, and the BBC. I asked Sean about one of the stories he worked on this past year for the BBC program World Football, the controversy surrounding Qatar's successful bid to hold the 2022 World Cup. Sean visited Qatar on the assignment, and I asked him what he learned there. You know, I, from from being there, and I went there without an agenda. It was we really went as a blank slate. My producer Richard Badula and myself we did a 30 minute special on BBC World Service and World Football special, and we really went in saying, look, we're totally neutral. We don't have an agenda. We we want to let this story unfold. We're not going there saying we're going to tell this story. We're not there to support Qatar. We're not there to support allegations. We're there simply to learn what, what we're going to see. And I'll tell you what I learned. It said their bid was phenomenal. We actually sat in the presentation hall, my, my producer Richard Padula and myself. We saw the bid presentation. I mean, it was phenomenal. It was Spielberg-esque in mm-hmm. how good it was. I don't think that there was any dirty pool whatsoever. What I think is you have an extremely wealthy, wealthiest in the world per capita Qatar, and an extremely determined country. And they did everything to get to bid. So, and also, if you look at the FIFA agenda, you know, going to South Africa, going back to South America now for the first time since 1978, they want to go to these new territories of the world. So, for people to say it was just flat out bought, I don't believe it. Do I believe there's corruption in FIFA? Absolutely. Just like I believe there's corruption in the International Olympic Committee. Mm-hmm. But the fact that, that people were just flat out bribed, I saw nothing to that. What I saw was a country that is willing to spend absolutely as much as they can, not just to host the World Cup, but their their thing is expect excellence. All the business cards say expect excellence. They don't just want to stage a World Cup. They want to stage the greatest World Cup ever. It was truly remarkable to see how this far out, I was there in June and in early July, 
this far out. We're talking 2022, mm-hmm. how energized this tiny little nation is about hosting the World Cup. So you expect that they're going to pull it off? That, uh, that oh, they're... there's no, there's no doubt in my mind. There is no doubt in my mind whatsoever. If we were talking about doing this in 2018, I think they would still do it, but it would be tied. 2022, no problem whatsoever. They have to build everything, but they are building everything. As, as we were given a tour uh, of so many parts of the country and, and of Doha, the capital of Qatar. They were saying, you know, two years ago this didn't exist, and now there are like these stunning buildings and, and homes and apartment complexes. So, look, if you have the money and you have the determination, you can certainly pull off construction projects. And there are cranes and contractors everywhere in that country. I have no doubt in my mind that they're going to do it. I think they're going to have a spectacular World Cup. Saying that as an American, do I wish that the U.S. would have been awarded that World Cup? Absolutely. Do I think the U.S. would have had a spectacular World Cup? Absolutely. But the U.S. didn't win, and I don't think people should really have sour grapes about it. I think if you're a fan of the sport, which clearly you and I both are, and I would imagine everybody listening to this is, you just have to think what's best for football, what's best for soccer, you know? Have a wonderful World Cup. Nobody should root against the World Cup if you're a fan of this sport. Nobody should want South Africa to fail or Brazil to fail to teach somebody a lesson. I think you just have to say, let's let's really hope that we have a spectacular World Cup wherever we go. And of course, I must ask you about about David Beckham. So so Beckham played most likely his last game in the MLS just about a week ago with uh, with his team, the LA Galaxy, winning the MLS Cup. And you've been a a pretty firm critic of of Beckham and and playing in the MLS. But I was surprised to hear recently that that you had something of a, of a positive take on his five years in the U.S. Well, you know, I, I've looked at it both ways, and, and I talked about Qatar and going there with the blank slate this past summer, and I did the same thing for, for BBC World Service on World Football. When David Beckham's signing was announced, which was January of 2007, I went out to Los Angeles, and at the time, I was a really big David Beckham fan. Mm-hmm. And as things started to unfold, the things I heard, and... and what really stood out for me was Quavis Kirk. And I'm the only person that's ever picked up on this in the media. Grant Wall, who's a fellow Kansas Cityan and I think the best soccer writer by some distance in the U.S. Even in his great book, The Beckham Experiment, didn't pick this up. But Quavis Kirk was uh, under-17 international, been drafted by the L.A. Galaxy. He had the number 23 shirt. Mm-hmm. He, came, he came in one day. Guess what, kid? Your number's changed. It's mm-hmm. not the way that it is done in this sport. Mm-hmm. You don't just bully yourself into a number. You you offer to take someone to dinner, or you write them a check for $100, or you buy them a case of beer, or you buy them a television or something. You just don't bully in. What was worse is that I don't think David Beckham even knew that that happened. I think it was his people coming in from 19 Entertainment and saying, he has a number 23 shirt. That guy? Are you kidding? That kid? Give me number 23. And I think that's what happened, and, and that was so unseemly to me. Put a bad taste in my mouth. The fact that Landon Donovan, who I, I've known since he was 16 years old, and I'm a huge Landon Donovan fan as a player, and even more so as a person. And the fact that he was coerced, mm-hmm. and that's the right word, coerced into giving up his captain's armband, which is detailed beautifully in Grant Wall's yeah, book, yeah. The Beckham Experiment. And the fact that David Beckham would go on loan in the offseason, well, you know, fair enough, a lot of people go on loan, but he was playing a lot better at AC Milan, wasn't he? <laughs> he was playing in Major League Soccer, then getting injured. You know, the stories of, of wanting to fly first class when that's not how it's done in MLS, the stories of complaining about the hotel, of not socializing with his fellow Galaxy players. So all of those things put a really bad taste in my mouth. 
And I just don't know how much of it was even David Beckham and how much of it was his people, and he just went along with it. So, you know, as we get some distance, I'll say David Beckham definitely improved the profile of Major League Soccer, more so, I think, outside of the U.S. and Canada than in the U.S. and Canada. You know, you look at the TV ratings, well, a 0.8 TV rating for David Beckham's last MLS match, in my opinion, the MLS Cup Final, Mm -hmm. and he gets beat by a tape-delayed Chelsea versus Liverpool match on Fox. Mm -hmm. That's not what the Beckham experiment was all about. But the fact that LA Galaxy now gets a television rights deal with Time Warner in Los Angeles, that Major League Soccer continues to improve their average attendance, that the club, that it's going to 19 clubs in Montreal, that NBC is now into this league and taking that package from Fox Soccer Channel. All those things, I think, are sort of traced back to David Beckham. Not directly, but had had David Beckham not come to Major League Soccer, does NBC try to sign with the league? Yeah, maybe, maybe not, but David Beckham definitely pushed it through. So it wasn't a great success. I don't think he always gave his best effort. I think he, he or at least his people, acted in a pretty unprofessional manner, but... He was brilliant this past year, and maybe if David Beckham had been that healthy and that determined over five years, I think people would probably have a much different opinion of it. So do you have any good books to recommend to us? Well, I, I think I just did in the uh, Beckham experiment. I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you, I'm, I'm somebody who spends my life on airplanes. Yeah, I was yeah. an English major in college. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a prolific reader. Uh, I, I read probably more than anybody I know. I have a tendency, because I work in sports, to want to read things that, that I don't work in. So I read a lot of American Revolutionary history, and I read a lot of World War II. I'm actually reading a book by Anton Beaver that I picked up the last time I was in England on uh, the race with the uh, the race to capture Berlin at the, at the closing days of World War II. So that's that's the type of book I normally read. My, my soccer reading is more magazines and now basically Internet articles, but I will tell you, Grant Wall's book, uh, The Beckham Experiment, is as good of a sports book going inside the locker room as I've read in a long time. It's probably like what North Dallas 40 did with yeah. the NFL in the 70s. And Grant Wall, I mean, I'm proud to say he's a fellow Kansas City, and he went to a rival high school of mine. It's kind of weird how the world works out that we grew up <laughs> probably eight miles apart. That is a phenomenal read. I think it's out in paperback now. Mm-hmm. And if anybody really wants to understand kind of what happened when Beckham came in and, and just the way that 19 Entertainment did it, it, it was great. It really was it was an outstanding book. Grand Wall writes for, sport, uh, for Sports Illustrated, really good things online. That's the soccer book recommendation for sure. And if you like World War II, anything by Stephen Ambrose. But when I do read sports books, I also find it fascinating to read the history of sports. I'm somebody who, in this in this industry, I've always been fascinated by the cultural implications of sports. Yeah. I like how sports really tell about a culture, and they tell about a time, and they tell about an era. People that are popular in a certain era may not have been popular in a previous, or may not be popular in a future or current era. I like how different countries and different cultures and societies how they reflect sports and, and how they're really reflected by sports and how they look at certain things. Somebody told me a long time ago, and I've always thought about this, you can tell about a nation's identity by the way they play soccer, and I mm-hmm. think that is so true. I don't, want to, I don't want to deal in stereotypes, but I think that's largely true. That's the type of stuff that really, really fascinates me. What I don't want to read is, is some badly written ghost, uh, ghost-written autobiography mm-hmm. of an athlete. 
that really holds no appeal to me. I want to get stuff that, that digs really deep, either great journalism like Grand Wall or really delves into the history of a sport or things with, that have to do with sport and society. I find that type of thing endlessly fascinating. Sean Wheelock's suggestion for the book list is titled The Beckham Experiment, How the World's Most Famous Athlete Tried to Conquer America, written by Grant Wall and published in 2010 by Three Rivers Press. And if you're interested in Sean's World War II recommendation, that is Anthony Beaver's The Fall of Berlin, published by Penguin in 2003. We'll move from football to football. Last spring, we talked to historian Kurt Kemper about his book, College Football and American Culture in the Cold War Era. And if you haven't heard that interview, be sure to check it out in the back catalog of episodes. Since that interview, reports broke of gifts and cash payments to players at Ohio State and the University of Miami. And there have been increasing calls this fall for some system of paying players in major college sports programs. As Kurt showed in his book on the 1950s and early 60s, scandals over compensation for players are nothing new in college sports. I asked him, as a scholar of college football, if he thought the overt paying of players would benefit the game. Well, I guess it depends on how you want to define benefit. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I do think that there, in terms of just a, a base level of intellectual honesty, um, I think it's appropriate. Um, I don't think anybody who's a significant follower of big-time college athletics, whether it's football or basketball, and even now we're starting to include some of the women's sports in there as well, um, the, the amount of time that these, that these uh, students put into this is far in excess of what their scholarship is actually covering. And one of the things that's come up recently as a, a, a point of example is that most of these meal or most of these scholarships do not include meal plans. Mm-hmm. So these kids are literally scrounging around looking for, um, you know, looking for spare meals. There was a piece in the LA Times just the other day. The athletic director, Pat Hayden, was in his office uh, on a weekend and five football players came in wanting to know if there was any receptions or anything on campus where they could scrounge free food. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do think that that's a, a fair uh, issue to address. Um, the other thing, however, I think that, and this goes back well into the, the 50s, um, and a point that I addressed just briefly in my book, is that the, the largest schools are going to be the ones who are going to be most actively advocating for this uh, ability to compensate players, um, you know, uh, up to a certain cash amount, because they're going to be the ones with the operating budgets who can literally afford it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the marginal schools are going to be the ones who are to oppose it, because they're not going to have the operating revenue. And basically, what you're going to have is an unlevel playing field when it comes to recruiting, because the big time schools are going to be able to tell those students hey, we're going to be able to give you, you know, scholarship plus X, and those other schools aren't going to be able to do that. And what this is going to do is going to drive up the operating costs for football and is either create, you know, greater pressures to find new revenue and thus further exploit the athletes or greater pressures to cheat. Um, And so when we talk about is this going to benefit college football, at one level, there's a certain level of benefit directly to the players because they're going to be more fairly compensated for the efforts and the labors they're putting into it. 
The flip side, though, is I'm afraid this is going to have unintended consequences. And if we look back at the history of college football, reform is nothing if not the story of unintended consequences in college football. Yeah, yeah. So to follow up on that, I want to ask a question that came out of a, a conversation I had off the air with another guest on the on the podcast this past year. And we were talking about the payment of players. And he made the point that if you start paying football players, basketball players, that will essentially turn these these college sports into professional minor leagues. And he raised the question as to whether this would damage the mystique of college sports and perhaps even erode the support for college sports. So as a historian of college sports and American culture, do you think this would be the case or are college football and basketball so popular and so deeply embedded that that they wouldn't suffer? In the short run, I don't think they would suffer um, because I think that anybody who is a close follower of big-time college athletics recognizes that these kids are not amateurs in the 19th century sense of the word. Uh, Long ago, have we disabused ourselves of the notion that these kids just happen to find their way on campus for because they were physics majors and, oh, by the way, they run the 40 and 4-3. So I don't think that if we provide the players some level of compensation, that that is inherently going to ruin the mystique. Where that first step might lead, however, is really unknown. If we ever get to a point where college players are in any way, shape, or form able to negotiate or in in any way participate in the setting of compensation, then I think that might set us on the road to perdition. Because one of the things I think that turns many people off to pro sports and allows them, perhaps delusionally so, to see a difference with college sports is that the the college players are there allegedly, you know, for the game and for the opportunity. And and whatever whatever ancillary benefits accrue to that, we're not, you know, going to begrudge them that. But, you know, nothing seems to set some of us against the pro sports like the the um you know the, the what we team what we seem to perceive as just the greed of yeah, it, the yeah. salary holdouts, the lockouts with the NBA. You know, anytime there's a labor dispute, it's generally, and not probably unwisely, uh, you know, described as millionaires versus billionaires. Um, And so paying players, I don't think necessarily will destroy that mystique. But if that eventually sets us on the road to where some players are getting more than others or are openly, you know, playing schools off against one another looking for the best deal, then I think you could see some of that because those are the things – that, that really, I think, uh, categorize professional athletics in the eyes uh, of many people. And so it's really not so much whether they're paid, it's, I think, the process and, and how the whole thing plays out. <laughs> so what books have you been reading this year? What can you recommend to us? Well, germane to our conversation, one of the ones I would highly recommend is Michael Oriard's Bold Over, uh, which is the third piece of his trilogy on college football, uh, the last one is, is a, a very much different from his first two, uh, but this last one looks at college football um, in the last 40-odd years. The subtitle is uh, something to do with, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but from the BCS to the, uh, I guess it's something to the, to the birth of the modern BCS. Um, and he looks at a lot of these issues, one of which is the movement in the 70s, uh, tore away from the outright scholarships to the annual grant and aids. 
Um, and, and Oriart attaches a lot of significance to this because it grants the athletic departments a tremendous amount of authority over the academic and, and even political lives of, of uh, the student-athletes. Oriard contends that this was a response to the student activism of the 60s and that by uh, making these uh, grants and aids renewable annually, this gave them a lot more control um, over what the student-athletes did on campus. It also, Oriard contends, gave them greater authority over the students in terms of off-campus and voluntary and summertime workouts uh, that students knew that if they weren't, you know, engaging in a four-year regimen, uh, that the coach was demanding that they could have their scholarship rescinded. Um, so uh, th- those are, I think, significant issues to what we're looking at today and the dramatic escalation of the functional rationalization of, of football. Um, but Oriard is also looking at the way in which uh, the, the economics of college football have dramatically escalated in the last 15 or 20 years, and he has all kinds of statistics in terms of uh, coaches' salaries and revenues, um, and, and those are all you know really germane to the conversation, uh, particularly with regards to paying players. Uh, I don't think we would be having some of these conversations if we weren't be talking about if we weren't talking about TV you know contracts you know, where teams were getting $30 million over the 10-year life of the deal and things of that nature. Um, and Oriard's book is, is really good for uh, several reasons. He's probably our most astute observer of, of college athletics today. Um, but one of the things he, he manages to avoid is the sort of the holier-than-thou, you know, suggestion about, gee, if everybody would just listen to me, this is how we could fix the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, he, he largely avoids uh, prescribing any sort of remedies um, and just more effectively looks at, at causes and consequences. Um, and, and one of the interesting and, and potentially controversial um, components that he looks at is the relationship of Title IX to all of this. Um, Oriard, I think, is, is probably a, a fan of Title IX in the sense that he recognizes a, a, a very significant level of fairness and equality that the law implies and certainly the excellence that women's college athletics has achieved. Um, but at the same time, he is, and he provides a fair amount of evidence, he's accurate when he says that we do not have an, evil, an even playing field when it comes to college athletics within the athletic department. We are unwise if we ignore the amount of revenue that is provided by college football. Um, whether college football players themselves deserving or are deserving of all of that or avoids the, the question. Um, but the point of the matter is we can't ignore that it's football that's driving you know, the beast for all of this. And if you look at the conference realignment that's just gone on in the last 10 months, um, all of that is being shaped by football. Um, you know, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the Pac-10 or the Pac-12 now, and all of the decisions that are being made there um, were about football, and it ignored some of the other traditions that the conference has historically had, particularly its commitment to women's athletics and its commitment to what we now call the Olympic sports, what we used to call country club sports. Um, you know, I don't think when they were trying to invite Texas or Oklahoma, anybody cared what their women's softball program was like or if they had a water polo team. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, those are, those are things that college football fans can tend to ignore. But when we talk about the vitality of a conference, particularly at least the Pac-10, you know, those are, those are big deals. I've been to an SC-UCLA water polo game, and the place was sold out. So, <laughs> Kurt's recommendation is Michael Oriard's book, Bold Over. Big-time college football from the 60s to the BCS era. Published in 2009, 
by the University of North Carolina Press. And keep in mind Michael's history of professional football, brand NFL, which he spoke about himself on the podcast back in the summer. Last June, I also interviewed Don Van Natta about his book, Wonder Girl, The Magnificent Sporting Life of Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias, a biography of the woman regarded as perhaps the greatest female athlete of the 20th century. Don's day job is working as a national correspondent for the New York Times, and right now he is deep into a new investigative project, a book he is writing with a colleague at the Times on the phone-hacking scandal surrounding Rupert Murdoch's media empire. I asked Don what he enjoys more, uncovering and then putting into prose a compelling moment in the life of a sports figure like Babe Diedrichsen, or doing the hard-nosed work of an investigative journalist, digging in the dirt of serious wrongdoing, like in the case of Murdoch and his newspapers. It's a great question. I, I really enjoy both, and I, I, it sounds like a cop-out answer, Bruce, to say that I enjoy them both mm-hmm. equally. Um, I would say that it's harder to do uh, the kind of work that I did this summer and last year on the Murdoch phone hacking story, as, as you put it, getting into the dirt. Uh, that's more difficult um, than doing archival research about um, great figures in sports. Um, the most fun uh, is probably the sports stuff, which is why I keep gravitating toward these sports books, uh, which are very different from what my you know, workday life is. But, but I also have a great time uh, digging into these very difficult subjects. So Rupert Murdoch is, of course, an important figure not only in, in news media but also in sports media. And I'll ask if you've discovered any spillover from the misdeeds in the Murdoch's news operations to the sports operations, or, or maybe it's the other way around, that this is the case of a media corporation that was fundamentally in the business of entertainment, including sports entertainment, and then brought the outlook and practices of that industry to covering news. So do you see any connection between Murdoch's news empire and his sports empire? Not really. I, you know, it, it, another great question. I think that what we saw at News of the World before it was shut down last July uh, was really endemic to News of the World. Um, there's been some evidence that's come out in recent months that phone hacking and uh, the violation of uh, the privacy of people that are written about uh, didn't only happen at News of the World. It may have also happened at The Sun, which is another uh, tabloid that Murdoch owns in London. Um, but I don't see any spillover on sports. Fox Sports, of course, is a uh, huge presence here in the United States. Uh, you know, they, they broadcast the World Series and they have the NFL, uh, and uh, they're now uh, making a big mark uh, with soccer. And, uh, and, and, and in the UK, of course, Sky Sports is a, um, you know, behemoth. It's the 800 pound gorilla because it has Premier League football, uh, and rugby and, and, and basically all the sports that, uh, Britons care about. So, um, I have not seen, um, any spillover at all. In fact, I, we have seen, uh, one or two instances of people that work for Sky Sports commentators, for instance, who were hacked mm-hmm. by the news of the world. Oh. So people that worked in another uh, branch of the Murdoch empire in the UK were targeted by the news of the world. So I know you're a great fan of golf, Don, and uh, you've written about the history of, of golf in your two sports books. 
And just last week, Tiger Woods won his first match in two years, and a couple weeks before that, he finished third in the Australian Open. Now, now, not knowing whether or not you're a fan of Tiger, I'll ask, I'll ask your view. Do you think is is it good for golf that Tiger is back at the top of leaderboards, or might it have been better to consider uh, to consider the post-Tiger era in golf? No, it's a great thing for golf that Tiger is back. And um, as evidence of that, I point to my mother, who is not <laughs> a sports fan. But my mom watches golf when Tiger is near or at the top of the leaderboard because she's fascinated by Tiger. And even after this huge scandal, I asked her this question recently. She said, oh, no, I still like Tiger. I want Tiger to win. Huh. Uh, so when if you can bring in, you know, non-sports fans like my mother, and certainly he attracts the casual sports fans, the fans who are, you know, not the diehard golf fans, um, that's a huge, great thing for golf. Now, I didn't think quite frankly, Bruce, this past weekend, that that was some great uh, championship yeah, yeah. that he won, some great tournament. It was sort of almost like an intramural tournament that he won. Um, there was only 17 other golfers that he was up against. Um, Tiger certainly acted as if it was the Masters on, on that final hole with that fist pump. But uh, but certainly it sets up a much more interesting 2012 uh, with the majors with Tiger playing well. All right. Did you read any good books this year? I did. I read quite a few, uh, and uh, it's hard to whittle down uh, just uh, my two or three favorites. Uh, there was uh, at least a dozen just outstanding sports books published in 2011. So do you have a, a top three? I do. Um, I would say uh, I'll, I'll do them sort of in reverse order okay. of my favorites. My, my third favorite is a book uh, written by a colleague of mine and, a, and an old friend of mine at the New York Times, so full disclosure here, uh, but it's a, just a fantastic lyrical baseball book called Bottom of the 33rd. Uh, it's about a minor league baseball game that was the longest minor league game, actually the longest baseball game in history in 1981 that was played in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. And Dan Barry uh, just does a wonderful job sort of going back, looking at all of the players there 30 years later, uh, following their lives. And he has the benefit of, in this particular ball game, some famous players played in it, like Cal Ripken, Wade Boggs, and Bobby Ojeda. And it's just anybody who loves baseball will love this book. It is a beautifully written uh, Dan is Dan is really a lyricist, but he's also an incredible reporter who gets great details about everybody he writes about. And uh, I think it, I think it'll be remembered 10, 15, 20 years ago as really one of the truly great baseball books. And number two on your list. Number two is a book, uh, again, by another friend of mine uh, named Scott Rabb, who is a writer at Esquire. It's called The Whore of Akron, uh, a pretty provocative title that uh, Scott dubbed uh, LeBron James. Uh, Scott is a lifelong Cleveland sports fan. And when LeBron James decided uh, infamously uh, on ESPN on that show, the decision to go to take his talents to South Beach, uh, Scott became furious at that and writes a book about, uh, by, about that decision and sort of follows LeBron to Miami and attends several games. But it's about much more than that. It's also a memoir uh, of Scott as a fan. And uh, it's in the tradition of uh, Frederick Exley's classic, A Fan's Notes. It's uh, a hilarious book, very, very well written, 
Scott's had uh, a tough life. Uh, he was addicted to drugs and alcohol uh, as a younger man, has conquered uh, those demons. But the last demon that he hasn't conquered is LeBron James in a Miami Heat uniform. And uh, it's hilarious watching him try to conquer that, that final demon of his. And your number one book of the year? My favorite book uh, by far, really, was the ESPN uh, book that, uh, that was done by uh, Tom Shales, the writer for the Washington Post, and James Miller. The title is Those Guys Have All the Fun. For me, it's, it, it's really an extraordinary book, and it's out, I believe, in paperback uh, just this week. Uh, it takes you inside ESPN uh, in a way, if you're a sports fan, that's just fascinating. Uh, all the way back to 1979, when the network began as just a, uh, a, a small local cable channel doing sports in Connecticut, and how it's become this uh, extraordinary uh, success story in sports, and arguably maybe the most uh, uh, popular and successful TV network in America and how that's happened. And it's filled with inside stories. The extraordinary thing that these two authors did is they talked to 500 people at the network on the record. So it's a sort of oral history of ESPN. And, uh, and there's a lot of just juicy, fun tales in there. If you're a sports fan, uh, it's a must read. So when we talked back in the spring, Don, uh, when the NFL lockout was still in place, you, I remember you were wondering how you were going to make it through the fall. <laughs> and, and football came back, and you've had to suffer through the miserable season of the Minnesota Vikings. Yes, it's been very, very painful. Uh, two and ten right now, and uh, you know, with a chance of us going two and fourteen, uh, it's been very, very tough to take. Um, but um, what, what I'm, I'm sort of, you know saying to myself, it could be worse. You know, we could be in the NFC Championship game with our quarterback throwing the last-second touchdown. That, that's, that's worse, Bruce, than what I'm <laughs> suffering through this year. So, so uh, as a, as a long-suffering Vikings fan, you know, you, you've got to look for the silver lining in, in even a 2 and 10 season. Don Van Natta's top three sports books of 2011 are Dan Barry's Bottom of the 33rd, Hope, Redemption, and baseball's longest game, published by Harper. The Whore of Akron, One Man's Search for the Soul of LeBron James, written by Scott Rabb and published by Harper. And Those Guys Have All the Fun, Inside the World of ESPN, written by James Miller and Tom Shales, and published by Little, Brown, and Company. Another guest I was happy to welcome back is Tony Collins, director of the International Center for Sport, History, and Culture at De Montfort University in Leicester. Tony had been on the podcast earlier in the year to talk about his award-winning book, A Social History of English Rugby Union. But I wanted to ask him about the other English football. With this year marking the 20th anniversary of the creation of the English Premier League, I asked for his view as a historian on the first two decades of the EPL. Uh, well, normally I refuse to speak about anything that happened <laughs> in the last 30 years because I'm a historian. We're useless about talking about anything that's recent. But I think one of the interesting things, I think 20 years is, gives us sufficient distance mm -hmm. uh, to be able to make at least an initial, initial assessment. And I think that really the, the Premier League... Um, uh, alongside some of the developments that were happening in the states, in terms of the way that Fox um, uh, came into came into uh, the NFL in the, around about the same period, um, it really marks the beginning of a new stage in sport. Um, 
most of the development since in sports since well going back to the 1780s with the development of uh, um, newsprint culture most of the developments in sport have been driven by developments in media um, newspapers radio television in the 1950s I think the Premier League represents a new stage in the development of that relationship and uh, through satellite cable digital television um, so I think it's in hindsight, we can now see that the Premier League and similar developments around the world have taken sport to um, have taken sport to to a new level. So you wouldn't join there. There have been some naysayers, though I know, uh, in the UK in terms of uh, making the case that the Premier League has actually ruined English football. Would you? Ah, uh, well, that's that's a that's a different matter. I mean, yeah. um, um, in a sense, I've got sympathy for, that, because, sympathy for that view because the price of going to a soccer match, mm-hmm. um, uh, I mean, is is crazy nowadays. If you want to take a family to 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 watch a soccer match, you're not to a Premier League soccer match. You're not going to have much change left from 150, 200 pounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I mean, I don't know what the what the charges are like in the NFL, but certainly in baseball, I know it's nothing like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that sense that the game has been has been taken away from its traditional grassroots. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I'm also again, hopefully, as a my historian's training teaches me to be suspicious of uh, of nostalgia. And I guess if you went back to the 1970s with English soccer, you could hear exactly the same things about how the game has been ruined mm-hmm. uh, by various people. So I think that's a cyclical thing. But I think there is actually there is an element of truth in that, and that the um, uh, soccer is no longer the um, uh, the easy form of entertainment that everybody can go along to, everybody can enjoy. It, uh, I, it's expensive to go to a match, and it's also expensive to get uh, cable or satellite yeah. TV to watch it. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's turn to your book list, and I'll ask you uh, what you recommend for us uh, that's been published in the last couple of years. Well, I've got a couple of books that were published, that have been published this year. Um, both... Um, um, dealing with subjects in what might be called the Celtic fringe of the British Isles. The first one I've got is by Gwyn Prescott, and it's a book about the history of uh, the 19th century history of the development of rugby in Cardiff in South Wales. It's called This This Rugby Spellbound People, Hmm. Rugby rugby Football in 19th Century Cardiff in South Wales. And this is a, um, it's a, it's a wonderful piece of historical research. It basically takes looks at the emergence and development of rugby in, in Cardiff in particular from around about the late 1870s all the way up to the uh, early 1900s when it clearly becomes the, the mass spectator sport of, of South Wales. Um, it's, it's, it's one of these books that are based on the classical principles of social history. Um, uh, there's an enormous amount of research that's gone into uh, into writing it, so uh, particularly from local newspapers, and there's some wonderful stories uh, about the game. But he's taken it a step further, and again, in the best traditions of classical social history, he's looked at not only what happened, but who was involved in the game, where did the players come from, where did the administrators come from, uh, what were their occupational and class backgrounds, and through doing that, he gives this wonderful picture of a, a vibrant sporting culture that's an integral part of Cardiff in the um, in the late nineteenth century. Um, it's um, 
it really is, I think, a model of how to do um, sports history in a city. Uh, and it's something there should be more of. I know, certainly in the States, I know there's been, there's been some good books on, uh, uh, on the development of sports in the city, um, New York, Chicago, and other places. Um, but certainly it, within, um, within Europe and Britain, it's not, been, it's not been done so much. So Gwyn Prescott's book, I think, is, a, is, a, is an absolute model of how to, not only to do social history, but also how to integrate sport with the development of a, uh, of a major city. And what's your other choice? The other book is slightly different. Um, it's a um, uh, it's in the best possible sense of the word. It's a popular history <laughs> of the Gaelic Athletic Association. And when I say popular history, I don't mean to be patronising because it's actually written by um, uh, Mike Cronin, Mark Duncan, and Paul Rouse. And I know Mike Cronin and Paul Rouse very well. And they are top-notch uh, historians. Um, but this is part of a project that. Um, Boston College has been involved in for a long time, uh, writing the the history of the uh, Gaelic Athletic Association in Ireland. And they published, I think a couple of years ago, they published a um, a volume called the GAA, A People's History, which is a, uh, a fantastically researched and wonderfully illustrated book. This book, the GAA County by County, is um, the next stage in that research. And as it says on the, uh, in the title, it looks at the history of the Gaelic Athletic Association, uh, especially um, Gaelic football and hurling, uh, through every county of, uh, of the entire island of Ireland. And there's also a final chapter on, Gael- on the Gaelic Athletic Association overseas, particularly in the States and Australia and other places. Um, what they've done, and um, uh, which I, I really take my hat off to them over this, They've managed to combine the best type of historical scholarship with a um, with the very best in in popular histories. So each the each county has its own chapter, which in the space of five or six uh, pages t- tells in a very detailed um, and accessible, but still scholarly way, the history of um, the GAA in that county. And it, each one has uh, a few pages of uh, what are absolutely wonderful photographs. Um, it's an absolute model of how um, academic historians can engage with a with a sporting community and bring their skills to benefit that. So uh, it, it's a great book, and I'd recommend it uh, for anybody. And certainly, if uh, you have any if any Irish relatives in the family, it's an absolutely fantastic uh, Christmas book. Oh. All right. Well, thank you for the selection. So I imagine that you have a busy year at the center coming up next year with, with the Olympics. You're working on a big project with BBC Radio, correct? Yeah, we've got. Um, it's a, well, given the fact the Olympics are in Britain, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. So we're working with BBC Radio um, to do a thirty part history of sport in Britain called Sport and the British, which will begin uh, broadcasting in the last week of January. Okay. Uh, goes on for six weeks and we're also involved in some very interesting projects around um, conferences for for the Olympics Uh, so for example we're teaming up with the University of Southampton um, the Museum at Lords the Cricket Ground in London and also the Rugby Football Union for a conference uh, on the Olympics in uh, around about Easter time and we've also got a bunch of uh, other things that we've got lined up um, that are kind of um, they're both academic but 
we're also trying to uh, make our presence felt in a broad, in a broader, more popular history, uh, in some of the more popular history uh, events that that take place. So we're looking forward to it, and we hopefully it will help um, in, inspire some some more really interesting work mm-hmm. on the history of sport, both in Britain and overseas. Tony Collins's suggestions are Gwyn Prescott's book "This Rugby Spellbound People." Rugby Football in 19th Century Cardiff and South Wales, published by the Welsh Academic Press in 2011. And the illustrated history of Gaelic sports is titled The GAA, County by County, written by Mike Cronin, Mark Duncan, and Paul Rose, published by Collins Press in 2011. Here in the States, a big space on the shelf of new sports books is always taken up by baseball books. In the past year alone, more than 300 non-fiction books on baseball were published. To help us sort through this mountain, we have the help of Stephen Goldman, the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus. In addition to contributing articles to the BP site, Steve is responsible for a popular annual entry in the catalog of new baseball books, the best-selling Baseball Prospectus Annual. He is also the author of what might be called an intellectual biography of the famed manager Casey Stengel. When I spoke to Steve, the World Series between the Cardinals and the Rangers had just finished, and there was much talk that this had been among the greatest World Series ever, or at least that Game 6, in which the Cardinals had come back to win 10-9 in extra innings, was the greatest World Series game ever. I asked Steve, as someone who has read and written a lot on baseball history, how he would measure the greatest World Series game. That's a really interesting question because there are so many different ways that a game can be great. We could have a dominant individual performance such as Reggie Jackson in 77 or Albert Pujols in this World Series with the three home runs. You could have a great pitching performance as uh, with Don Larson. Uh, or, or some of the Sandy Koufax games in the World Series say. So there, there's no ironclad rule. And uh, what kind of amuses me is Game 6 was a great game. And then at the same time, if it was just a regular season game, we talk about how inefficient the bullpens were and how nobody could protect the lead. And, and it, it's very possible to take the same event and spin it both ways and say, oh, this is a really competitive seesaw baseball game. And another saying, you know, it really is an indication that both sides couldn't execute. <laughs> So, uh, I mean, and that, that's only if you're a bit cynical and the, and the glass is half empty, but really in, in, in the course of any given baseball season, we tend to do both. And so it, it really was a very exciting game. You couldn't relax at all, and uh, the Game 7 was a bit of an anticlimax. But certainly, uh, in terms of, of World Series, we haven't had a lot of game seven-game series in recent years, and it, it certainly held your attention all the way through. So I want to switch gears and ask about uh, the readers of Baseball Prospectus and the listeners to the Baseball Prospectus uh, podcast up and in. Uh, I was thinking about, you know, in terms of when I listen to the podcast and I listen to up and in and the people who send in in emails, they just they know baseball uh, so deeply and they know the prospects. And I was thinking back to my dad, who's who's a baseball fan and who is a Twins fan. And I remember him, you know, he'd listen every night on the radio. But when Kirby Puckett came up into the big league, he was just completely stunned. You know, who was this guy? He, it was like he came out of nowhere. 
And I was thinking you wouldn't have that anymore because, you know, you have fans who know, you know, who's got uh, uh, what tools in double-A ball. And so I, I wanted to ask, how has um, um, baseball fans' knowledge of the game changed and why has it changed? It's, it's really the explosion of media in part. Uh, I was just for this book that we're working on, I was just writing about how when I was a kid, in the mid-1970s, the back of a baseball card had so little information on it. And that was it that we had in terms that of our knowledge. Right, exactly. That and maybe the, that long Sunday column of, of uh, batting average, yeah. home runs, and RBIs in the paper, and that only listed qualifiers. So if, if a guy had, you know, was a part-time player on a team, he didn't even appear there. And, and uh, I was trying to make the point that those numbers are, were not in many cases even representative of what a player could do. So, I mean, starting with Bill James, we really had this explosion of interest in the the story behind the numbers, the history behind the players, and then I guess I, I mean I would have to give credit to, to Baseball America, which you know came into existence around the time that you referenced uh, with your dad and with Kirby Puckett co- coming up, right around seventy nine or eighty, I think, mm-hmm. um, and they really pioneered that kind of coverage. And I think that people began to realize that there was an untapped market for that. And it, it's very amusing to me because, uh, I mean, first of all, Kevin Goldstein, both with the podcast and in his writing on BaseballPerspectives.com, just does a brilliant, uh, brilliant job of covering that area. And so it's not surprising to me that people would want to follow, follow what he, he writes. But it seems to me, just judging by what gets attention uh, you know, and, and I get to see all the numbers as editor-in-chief of Baseball Perspectives, in terms of what kind of stuff we write about, the popularity of the prospect stuff is, is some of the most popular stuff mm. that we do. And it seems to me that there are some baseball fans, and I'm not criticizing this, mind you, but there are some baseball fr- fans who essentially would rather go to the movie theater, watch the coming attractions, mm-hmm. and then walk out of the theater not having seen the main feature. They're just they're very focused on who's coming up, who's working their way through the through the minors, who's going to get to the bigs. Once they get to the bigs, they're less concerned about that guy. It's on to the next kid, huh, huh. and it's a, it's a really interesting. I, I'm not I, I I try to think about what the the psychology of that is, and I don't know that I've come up with a good answer for it. I'm certainly grateful for it, and I identify with it because I follow it as much as possible. But I also have an interest in the major league game. That you know, it's not as as exclusive as it seems. That the interest of some of the people who really get involved in prospects is. Huh. Well, let's turn to your book list, and I'll ask you. Uh, uh, so, what what recent books do you recommend? Well, I've read as part of the the um, the research for the book I'm working on. I've been kind of jumping all over the place to baseball books, old and new, and I've had a very distracted year. But the the most the, the most recent books that I've read. From this year, the, the first that I actually read was actually a, a novel, uh, or I should say the most recent, which was The Art of Fielding by Chad Harbach, which uh, I don't know if you've discussed this already on your podcast, mm-hmm. but uh, it's, it's focused on the college game and is, is really well written. I, I, I had some problems with it in the, in, the, in the end, in the sense that the first half of it seems to be a very evocative, um, well-understood kind of evocation of the college milieu and the kind of mindset that college players have. And then as he gets into some of the secondary characters, some of the off-the-field issues, the on-field and baseball stuff really gets lost. 
And it's not to say that it's a bad book or not worth reading, but it stopped being as squarely as squarely directed at at me as a as a baseball fan who wanted to read a piece of baseball fiction. This year, I've also read uh, Jane Levy's book, Mantle Book, The, mm-hmm. the Last Boy, and uh, uh, Campy. The uh, uh, I'm going to mess up the subtitle, but I think it's The Double Life of of or the Two Lives of. Uh, of Roy Campanella by Neil Langtot. The, the Mantle book and the Campanella book, I think, were, were very valuable in that. Uh, Mantle obviously is shrouded in a lot of myth and a lot of hagiography, people who really look at him from a point of view of hero worship, um, to the point that, and, and this obviously was what Levy was getting at in, in titling her book, what she did, one of the, the, the Mantle biographies that came out around the period that he died was called The Last Boy Scout, and she just lopped the scout part off, and now it's the last mm-hmm. boy, which is is evocative of, of Peter Pan, Pinocchio, and and lots of other children who are uh, reluctant to or don't successfully grow up, and that is certainly a theme of that book. Um, and with Campanella, I, I think that I, you know what I one of the first older baseball cards I ever saw, uh, a, a relative of mine had inherited when I was younger this great set of old '50s cards uh, from his dad. Excuse me. And one of the most um, compelling and simultaneously grotesque cards that I've ever seen was uh, the Roy Campanella Symbols of Hope card. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I might be sort of mistitling that, but it's very close to that. And I don't know if you've ever seen this mm-hmm. card, but it's a it's a shot of Roy Campanella waving from his wheelchair. Mm-hmm. In uh, the I guess the set came out the year that he got hurt, and it you know when when I was young, obviously I didn't know the story, so mm-hmm. it's very odd. Mm-hmm. What is what is this doing there? But so it's it, it's it's definitely interesting to see somebody delve into who he was both before and after that life-altering accident. So do you have an old favorite that you recommend? Goodness, that's a, that's a really hard question to answer. But I, I'm sitting in my office now, and as somebody who does write about history, I'm surrounded by probably, no exaggeration, about a thousand baseball books. <laughs> and um, I, there are so many favorites that I have, and depending on the, the people ask me these kinds of questions all the time, and depending on the day and the sort of the gist of their their question, where it's angled in terms of, I really want to read a biography, or do you know uh, a great book on this period of time? I'll give a different answer to the question. But one of my my fallbacks for people who have just not delved into the the history of the game and some of the great characters in the game is Vec is in Rec, which was Bill, Bill Vec's autobiography. Uh, which was uh, and as told to with Ed Lynn and the the great skill that Ed Lynn had as a as told to guy or ghost if you want to be a, a, a little more basic about it he he had a a very good w- uh, way of not obliterating the subject's voice and being able to get it down from tape or notes or whatever he used onto paper he also did Leo DeRocher's Nice Guys Finish Last which is also a very very good book in both cases. They deal with a period of baseball that's very different from ours, and um, the adventures of some very idiosyncratic people. Vec was a, a kind of self-financed entrepreneur who owned a series of teams and did some really uh, interesting and, and sometimes successful, sometimes not, things with them, taking over the Indians, winning the 48 World Series, and then on the other hand, trying to save the St. Louis Browns by doing things like putting a, a midget in costume, uh, or in uniform, I should say. Um, so... And along the way, he gets into some of the inner workings of uh, 
breaking the color line, which of course he was involved with because he was the man who brought Larry Doby into the American League, the first African American in the American League. Uh, he uh, tried, tried. There's there's some argument about whether this actually happened, but at least tells the story that he tried to buy the Phillies during World War II and uh, to staff it with African Americans and was thwarted by Judge Landis, one of his dying acts. Uh, and and uh, various other machinations involving franchise relocations, ownership changes, different personalities behind the scenes. And if you, you're at all interested in baseball of the uh, 30s, 40s, and 50s, it's, it's just a terrific read and often a very funny one. The novel that Steve mentioned is Chad Harbach's book, The Art of Fielding, published by Little Brown and Company. The two biographies he recommended are The Last Boy, Mickey Mantle and the End of America's Childhood by Jane Levy, published by Harper, and Neil Langto's book, Campy, The Two Lives of Roy Campanella, published by Simon & Schuster. And Steve's choice of a classic baseball book is Vec, as in Rec, the autobiography of Bill Vec, as told to Ed Lynn, available in a 2001 reprint edition from the University of Chicago Press. We'll turn from the game of summer, America's national pastime, to the game of winter, the national sport of Canada. For a selection of hockey books, I asked for recommendations from the author of an acclaimed blog on the sport, A Theory of Ice, which you can find at theoryofice.blogspot.com. Hockey fans recognize this blog for its fresh, astute, and humorous insights into the way the game is played, its history, and culture. And this perceptive view of the game can be attributed to the fact that the blog's author, who goes by the pen name E, came to the sport as an outsider, as someone who moved from the States to Montreal as a graduate student, and there discovered hockey. The blog's first post declared E's love for this newly discovered sport. And over the last five years a long time in the scheme of sports blogs, E has analyzed various aspects of hockey. For our interview, I had permission to use E's first name, Ellen, and I asked what led her to carry out this developing love affair with hockey in the form of a blog. Um, I think it was when I first started, it was... um I had moved, just moved to Montreal for graduate school, and I'd grown up in Chicago and, like, know nothing about hockey. Like, hadn't heard of it, hadn't seen it. And I sort of, I saw a Canadian's game. I fell in love with it really fast, but I knew absolutely nothing about it. And I felt like the discourse that you already see, especially in Montreal about hockey, is a lot of people who they already sort of think they know all of this stuff, and they're starting from this very advanced point. And I wanted to sort of say, okay, I'm somebody who knows nothing about hockey. So starting from nothing and working my way up sort of through the fundamentals of it, you know. So I I thought that the perspective of somebody who was learning the game sort of as an outsider had something to offer that, you know, people who grew up with the game from the cradle don't really see. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing I actually enjoy about your post is that you have something of a the enthusiasm of a new convert to the sport, yet you also have these uh, these quite impressive insights about the game and its culture. And so so I was wondering, how did you go about educating yourself in hockey? Because it's clear you did more than just go to games. Um, 
I went to games. I um, I did a lot of reading. I I think a lot of my education though has come through people I've met and discussions that I've had with them. I also think that part of it is, like I said, I was in graduate school when I first discovered hockey. So I did bring this very sort of analytical, deconstructive mindset mm -hmm. that came from my other life experience, which, you know, and the, I think the interesting thing is, again, that even people who, people who grow up with hockey, even if they go to graduate school later in their lives, they sort of, you know, develop a more analytical mindset in other ways that they sort of don't always apply it to hockey because that's sort of something that comes from childhood and that they always look at with a sort of romantic demeanor. And I think I brought, I brought a much more analytic perspective. Not that I don't love it, but I, I take everything apart. <laughs> and so you just recently started playing hockey. Is that correct? Yeah. I just moved back to Toronto from, from Taiwan. And one of the great things about living in Toronto is there's just so much ice. There's so many rinks, indoor and outdoor, and there's um, women's hockey programs. So, yeah, I'm about six classes into my program and it's difficult but it's wonderful and I um, you know even in five years of writing the blog there's things I never realized about hockey until now until I started playing it so, such as well I realized how much hockey is a game of just incredible like small physical details mm -hmm. I mean just things like the angle of your wrist mm -hmm. when you make a certain move or just you know the position of your body the position of your you know, the angle between your torso and your feet. Like, um, there's all these details of the way you position your body vis-a-vis -vis the puck vis-a-vis -vis the stick that, you know, I've seen them a million times, but I've never thought about it until I had to learn how to do it myself. All right. Well, I'll ask you, what's on your book list then? What what books did you uh, most enjoy as you were learning about hockey? Okay, well, the, the one that I would recommend really highly is um, a book called the, the Tropic of Hockey mm -hmm. by Dave Bedini. It's a few years old now, but um, and I would recommend this for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it's really well written. I mean, there's a lot of sports books that get kind of churned out fast and, you know, they're interesting. The content is interesting, but the writing isn't so great. But um, Tropic of Hockey is one of the books that's really excellently written. It's about Bedini's travels to look at the way hockey is played outside of the major hockey countries. So he goes to Hong Kong, uh, Harbin in China, Dubai, the United Arab Emirates, and um, Transylvania in mm -hmm. Romania to look at hockey cultures and the way the game is played in these places. And as he's doing that, he interlaces the experiences he has of meeting people who play hockey there with his own experiences playing hockey in Canada and learning hockey as a Canadian. And so it it really develops this sort of fascinating interplay between hockey and culture. Mm -hmm. And if somebody's looking to buy a gift for a hockey fan, I think it's great because it's not something that everybody would own already and it's a very unusual topic, but it's really well written and I think anybody would learn a lot from it. Like even people who know the game really well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That sounds cool. I haven't heard of that actually. So, and what, what's your exactly. other choice? Um, my other choice is this is a book that's recently coming out. Um, it's a biography of Eddie Shore, 
called Eddie Shore in that old time hockey. He was a player for the Boston Bruins back in the 20s and 30s. Um, so like the first sort of flourishing of the NHL. And what I found really fascinating about this book is that there's a lot of debates in hockey right now about the violence of the game, particularly things like fighting, hits to the head, you know, what's a legal hit, what's an illegal hit, how much, and, and things like how dangerous should the game be? Like how much danger and violence can we allow? And I think this book about Eddie Shore, who was an incredibly aggressive player back in the day, gives you a really interesting perspective on what made hockey, what makes hockey such a dangerous game. The world that the, peop the, the people who played it in the beginning came from and the kinds of risk that they accepted, not just on the ice, but as part of life. You know, you're looking at the early days of hockey and people who come from, like Eddie Shore came from a incredibly rural part of Saskatchewan you know, just after the turn of the century, it was already a very, very dangerous place to live. And the kind of hockey that evolved out of that culture was much more violent than what we see today. So I think, you know, there's this issue where hockey has retained a lot of the culture and the sort of ideas that come from this much more violent time. And now we live in a much more safe world and we're trying to sort of figure out what that balance is. And I think that books like this really give you an extra level of insight into these sort of contemporary debates by understanding where the sport came from. Ellen's suggestions for hockey books are Dave Bedini's Tropic of Hockey, My Search for the Game in Unlikely Places, published in 2004 by Lions Press, and Eddie Shore and That Old Time Hockey by C. Michael Hyam, published by McClelland and Stewart, in 2011. Another sports blog that has been acclaimed for its smart observations and literary style is The Run of Play, found at runofplay.com. Edited by Brian Phillips, who writes for Slate and Grantland, the site features a number of contributors writing on world football. Whether or not you're a soccer fan, if you have a taste for philosophy, art, and literature, you'll appreciate the blog's reflections on topics like the narcissism of sports stars, ontology in sports video games, and the reasons we are drawn to watch sports. One of the regular and highly regarded contributors to the blog is Supriya Nair, the book critic for the Indian business newspaper Mint. Speaking to Supriya at her home in Bombay, I asked her first not about football, but about cricket, the national sport of India. I wanted to get her perspective on just how important it was for India that the cricket team won the World Cup this past spring. A part of me wants to say it was incredibly important, and it was. Uh, you know, the country erupted, uh, joy, celebration, bunting, guilt, braids, all of that. But I think it was uh, a significant step in a journey that the Indian cricket team after perhaps a decade or more than a decade of, um, of failure uh, had already begun to, to, to come out of. Um, so we were working with a team that we had, well, let me put it this way, when I was growing up in the 90s, my heroes were extremely talented, 
even genius sportsmen uh, who could be counted on to fail to win anything really big. Um, we grew up with that kind of disappointment. Over the last couple of years, we've developed uh, a young fighting team um, who play with you know some of these old geniuses who linger on, uh, who's, who've, who've learned to fight their way out of situations and uh, who've learned to storm you know bastions uh, at home as well as away. So it was a nice confirmation of um, of the strength of the, of the team, but it wasn't a complete surprise. So something else that I particularly enjoy about your essays for Run of Play is that you plumb the experience of being a sports fan in a way that that few sports writers do. You've discussed not simply what happens on the field, but how a match or following a team moves us at a, a deeper level in the way that, say, great literature moves us. So let me ask you, in your view, why do we watch sports? I was rereading um, part of a book called Beyond a Boundary by C.L.R. James, in uh, which uh, James puts forth the case that sport is art. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say sport is like art. He doesn't. He doesn't say that sport is similar to art. He says that it exists on the same plane as the theatre, as ballet, as as opera, as all other performing arts. And um, so perhaps in one sense, and I found myself agreeing with him on to a degree. So perhaps on one level, we watch sport for the same reason that we participate in or watch other performing arts. On another level, I'll repeat something that I've written in a run of play post before. I think sport exists for us at a pleasing intersection of art and life. Um, I don't think it's it's confined to a single pattern in the way art is. But it, let's just say it doesn't have the, the existential arbitrariness of, of life either. And there's, there's something about it for us to, um, you know, to be at the stadium or to be in front of the television and, and sort of watch these areas crisscross. Uh, I believe there's a sports theorist somewhere. I've, only have the second hand, but I will quote it to you, uh, who said that football is like a soap opera. You know, there, there is a limited set of, of circumstances, but within that, an endless, perhaps near infinite number of possibilities for um, outcomes, for drama, for, for theatre. Uh, and I think we enjoy that at a very fundamental level. Of course, at this point, I'm just talking about us as viewers of sport and not as, you know, participants in a ritual or or as um, co-authors of some sort of history, uh, both of which are also true, but, um, well, outside the scope of this answer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's turn to your book list, and and, uh, I'll ask you, what do you recommend for for listeners? I'm going to recommend uh, a book called Beyond a Boundary by C.L.R. James. C.L.R. James is... um, um, was a Marxist historian, a pioneering West Indian intellectual, uh, a pan-Africanist, a theorist whom uh, Edward Said was proud to call one of his own, and uh, a man much admired by his compatriots V.S. Naipaul and Derek Walcott for the quality of his writing. Now, none of this um, mattered to me when I first heard the name C.L.R. James because uh, 
with a name like that, uh, I could only imagine that it was, you know, an adorable, stuffy Englishman filing reports from uh, Lost Cricket Ground. And not for one minute do I want to discount the value of that kind of narrative. But I thought, you know, overdetermined. Do I really need, need to? Um, I'm happy to say I was put out of my ignorance uh, soon enough, having seen Beyond the Boundary, which is part memoir um, of, uh, you know, James's days as a cricketer and a cricket fan growing up in the West Indies. Um, part an apology for cricket itself and, you know, an apology in the traditional sense of the term. Um, he, he believes in, in the power of cricket as, um, as a historical force. He believes in it as a force of compromise, a place where, um, where the colonizer, and as you know, cricket has a history as, um, as a sport that was exported by colonization and is associated very much with the British uh, imperial project. Um, so he saw it as a meeting point for colonizer and the colonized. And amazingly, he also saw it as a point of resistance for uh, a place where a colonized man could enter an arena and prove himself an equal. And from within that arena, uh, bring out you know, the possibility, bring the possibilities of change uh, and of resistance and of a character forged in... Uh, by the particular demands of cricket and bring all of those out to bear on life outside. I, it's, it's also a marvelously written work. It's not, it doesn't have a particular pattern. It's a series of essays on things that have interested James uh, throughout his long life as a cricketer and a cricket fan. Um, it's, it's written in this wonderful, quiet, grave style that's uh, very early 1900s. And uh, it... it covers a bunch of, it uncovers, you know, this fascinating complex of, of race and of masculinity in the colonies and in colonial cricket. So I think it's a truly marvelous book, uh, truly representative of the finest values of cricket and uh, a great read. Relatedly, there's uh, Ramachandra Guha's uh, magnificent history of uh, cricket, specifically in, in colonized India and a little bit after in independent India, which is called Corner of a Foreign Field, which I think is one of the, one of the most appropriate titles for a book I have ever heard. Uh, it tells um, the history of, of how cricket developed uh, in India, first within the confines of, uh, of you know, British holiday spots uh, and then spread to uh, people who were, you know, men who were interested in the sport, um, co-opted servants, co-workers, colleagues, all brown people, and uh, eventually took on a life of its own within, um, within India. And again, to, give, to add weight to James's uh, position, became both representative of the colonization of India as well as of the resistance to that colonization. Because it was through this that um, that Indian humanity, well, Indian manhood in particular, but then cricket has always been one of those agreeable sports where uh, its fundamental values uh, are sort of universally um, adoptable and sort of you know, universally relevant of of um, of patience, of endurance, uh, and. Uh, that, that's very much proved through um, through the long, slow struggle of cricket uh, in Indian history, of the successes and of the many failures. And Guha puts all of that into beautiful perspective. Uh, I think it's a worthy read for anyone who's interested in the history of India, um, whether or not they know anything about cricket. And you have one more selection on a, on a subject that would be more familiar to, to American listeners. 
I love David Remnick's King of the World, which is his partial biography of Muhammad Ali. I read it um, in spite of the fact that I don't know anything about boxing. I wouldn't be able to pick Manny Pacquiao out of a crowd if you know if if you showed him to me, much to my sorrow. Uh, but I picked it because I think Remnick is a marvelous journalist, and I think he does something extraordinary in King of the World, which is to tell this dramatic, potentially incendiary story about you know a man whose image was larger than life and remains so. But what he does is bu- is to build Ali's life and um, his circumstances and his rivalries uh, incrementally, you know, scrupulously through fact, through known history, through record, through quotation. And sort of with these, with these small tools of journalism, you know, he manages to build something monumental. And um, the assembled picture gives us uh, such a moving idea of who Ali was and what he meant to his time uh, and to his people. Uh, and it, you know, it's backed so authoritatively by Remnick's quiet voice. So I think, I think it's it's very significant and perhaps one of the most important um, sports books ever written. Supriya's list of classic sports books is topped by C.L.R. James's memoir *Beyond a Boundary*, first published in 1963 and reprinted by Duke University Press in 1993. A corner of a foreign field. The Indian History of a British Sport was written by Ramachandra Guha and published by Macmillan in 2003. And her last recommendation was David Remnick's King of the World, Muhammad Ali and the Rise of an American Hero, published by Vintage in 1999. For the final guest of this year-end episode, I thought it appropriate to call on someone with the experience and wisdom to comment on the recent events in American sports. Here in the States, the year 2011 is coming to an end under a black cloud of horrible scandal. At Penn State University, charges of multiple instances of child sexual abuse against Jerry Sandusky, a former assistant coach for the university's successful football team, have brought the firing of the team's legendary head coach, Joe Paterno, as well as the firing of the university's president. To get a season view of these events and other events at the close of the year, I was fortunate to speak with Robert Lipsight, one of the most distinguished figures in American sports journalism, a longtime writer and columnist for the New York Times and the author of dozens of books, including most recently his memoir, An Accidental Sports Writer, published just this year. Bob, thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Bruce. So before we talk about the major events that have been in the headlines, I want to ask you about overlooked episodes of the past year. So in your view, has there been an episode or a story in sports that deserved greater attention, perhaps something that was missed by the larger sports media, yet you found to be uh, particularly meaningful or telling? Yeah, I think uh, it was not a specific incident, but it was this kind of class warfare uh, that, you know, has exploded all over the country mm-hmm. uh, to much more uh, vivid acclaim. But uh, in, in terms of the, uh, the labor management problems in sports, the, the framing of it has always been, uh, and particularly this year, billionaires 
versus millionaires, uh, as if uh, the rest of us, us thousandaires, uh, should say a pox on both your houses. And I thought it was a very interesting way that the in which the media was very complicitous uh, of dividing uh, us from the players. The idea that yes, these guys are many of them making you know, a million or more dollars a year, but they are still working people. Uh, their shelf life tends to be very short. More football players are three years, basketball players in general not that much uh, longer, while the owners of teams, the billionaires, in, uh, uh, invariably uh, have other businesses. They are not at all dependent on their sports franchises to uh, to fill their rice bowls. Uh, in fact, the sports franchises are basically ways of advertising. Mm-hmm. Uh, their pizza chain, their real estate concern, uh, whatever. Uh, I mean, I think that's why, you know, should, should there be no NBA season, it's going to be a lot harder, obviously, on the players and the fans psychologically than it will be on the owner. And I, I think this is a kind of a continuing uh, thread throughout the year, throughout the labor issues, uh, in, in other sports other than basketball, really reflecting uh, in, in vivid detail what is happening in the rest of society. So that's something that I've been really very interested in. Uh, just last week, uh, Jerome Frazier passed away. Now, I'm in my 40s, and I was in kindergarten at the time of the third Ali Fraser fight. So uh, for me, Fraser was always the retired former champion. And, and I would say for sports fans of my age and younger – you know, we don't really appreciate the the importance of a figure like like Joe Fraser. So, as someone who covered boxing, can you give us a lesson? I think that Joe Fraser was a very important foil mm-hmm. uh, in the Muhammad Ali saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, uh, it, it seems um, it seems clever to say that he was uh, totally overlooked. Uh, that he was one of the greatest heavyweight champions of all time um hey i i'm i'm totally cool with that uh but tell me how many uh heavyweight champions uh, <laughs> are on your list um he was a tough straight ahead uh bloody fighter very little uh finesse or tactical acumen he uh basically was willing to absorb an enormous amount of punishment in exchange uh, for hitting you, and he depended on the fact. You know, his he, he once described himself to me as I'm a I'm a tough piece of uh, I'm a small piece of leather, but I'm well put together, <laughs> and I think that really um, you know captured him. He was you know even even in those terribly tough North Philly gyms, he was a, a standout survivalist, the last man standing. Um, that being said, I, I really had had the sense, and I've written this, that uh, one of the reasons that he is getting so much posthumous attention, or, or actually uh, did until Penn State swept every other sports story aside, uh, was that it was a way to uh, get at Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. The, the uh, Muhammad Ali 
uh, revisionism and backlash has been going on rather strongly the last couple of years. There have been documentaries and, and a book, uh, Mark Cram's The mm-hmm. Ghosts of Manila, uh, an HBO documentary called The Thriller in Manila, all of which was a kind of a revisionism to make you know, Frazier mm-hmm. the, uh, the hero of uh, this great rivalry between the two men. Um, Frazier certainly deserves his place in this history. Mm-hmm. However, I think that there's a kind of right-wing uh, attempt to attack liberals uh, who, through Ali, who is seen as the, you know, beau ideal of, you know, liberals, literateurs, uh, and academics, mm-hmm. and, uh, and other people uh, who see him as an important uh, sports, historical, literary, political, civil rights character, some of which is, has been overblown, to be sure. But uh, still, I think that in, in the final uh, reckoning, to say that, as, as a Times sports columnist recently did, to say that Frazier was a better fighter and a better man is uh, absurd. Mm-hmm. So I want to turn now to Penn State, and uh, throughout your career, you've been a critical observer of what you called in one book, Sports World, and what you've called in in recent essays, Jock Culture. And I want to ask you how those criticisms you've made of the culture of American sports can be applied to uh, looking at the ongoing scandal at Penn State. Well, it's really clear that, uh, and and I, I guess... You know, we can the easy easy uh, connections are made, of course, uh, with churches, certainly the Catholic Church and their sex scandals, uh, corporate cover-ups, um, and the idea that uh, football, last vestige of masculinity in America, uh, a very important aspect uh, of higher education. Uh, a place for millions of American men to find comfort in their faux masculinity uh, is something that desperately needs to be protected. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really all about the institution being more important than any individual, whether that individual was a football player or, in the Penn State case, uh, you know, exploited children. And um, obviously, everybody knew this stuff was going on for about 13 years. And it was kind of pushed away so as not to damage the institution. And, you know, in hindsight, you say, well, man, they could have uh, done the simple thing, which is always declare. The system is healthy as soon as we cut this little cancer out. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they could have uh, quietly or not quietly taken uh, Jerry Sandusky uh, and hung him out to dry back in 99. But they didn't. They didn't because, one, they didn't want any kind of reflection or stain on the institution, which was football and which was Penn State. Um... And two, they felt they could get away with anything that they wanted, not only because they were Penn State and isolated geographically, and also uh, by law, uh, legally, where you really can't get at their records, uh, but also because they were football. Mm -hmm. 
you go across the country, and this has been uh, documented so many times that it's boring. Nobody really writes about it anymore. The incidences of rapes, assault uh, by football players um, in institutions throughout, kind of, but particularly Division One football, uh, has been to a great extent um, covered up uh, or quieted down, and. Um, the idea being that, oh, we give people second chances, or, oh, it was a mistake, or, oh, it was not totally documented, because, oh, what do you know? The campus police or the, the local cops all enthrall to the institution, which invariably is one of the biggest employers in that town, um, you know, didn't read them as rights or gave them a second chance or, you know, didn't follow through uh, as a witness so a number of the books that you've published are uh, novels for young readers, and in those novels you have not shirked from uh, looking at the uh, the darker side or the negative side of sports. And uh, so I have a 13-year-old son who's a fan of your sports novels, and he asked me last night, Dad, how do you think Joe Paterno will end up being viewed? What will his uh, what will this affect beyond his legacy? And so, uh, how can I today going home? Uh, what can I tell him that Bob Lipsight said in response to that question? Well, I, I think that uh, Joe Paterno uh, is turning out to have been uh, a secretive, narcissistic, self righteous man, mm-hmm. obviously a very talented football coach and motivator of young people, mm-hmm. uh, a, a flawed human being. Uh, the reason why I was not surprised was in the middle 90s, it was a brief period when Paterno was the athletic director. And during that time, I was writing the Times Sports column, and uh, I had found out that the women's basketball coach, a woman named Rene Portland, was going around in her recruiting trips telling the the parents of prospective uh, Penn State women's basketball players that the one thing that I can promise you is if you come to Penn State, there'll be no predatory lesbians in my locker room. Whoa. I mean, what a terrible Mm -hmm. thing to say on so many levels, plus the fact that obviously, you know, it's a a, uh, a cynical and vile route recruiting technique. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I interviewed her. I interviewed a lot of uh, players. She also had some witch hunts on campus and drove girls out, talked to them, and kind of presented all of this to Paterno, who just kind of blew me off. Mm-hmm. Did not want to have anything to do with this. Did not want to look into it. And it was years and years before uh, Rene Portland you know, finally left Penn State mm-hmm. uh, with some sort of uh, on, on their part uh, realization of, of admittance of what she had been doing. So, I mean, I, I, I think my sense of him then, uh, almost 20 years ago, was uh, that it was uh, Penn State Uberalis. It was the institution at any cost, no matter what the cost was, to other people's lives. And I think that... Um, I wouldn't call him an evil man by any means, but uh, to hold that idea is, uh, is you know, such a kind of uh, righteousness, such a, a kind of madness mm-hmm. that uh, 
individuals don't matter. It's merely the institution that matters uh, is, is where we've gotten into so much trouble, uh, you know, on a planetary basis. Mm-hmm. So, Bob, read any good books lately? Yeah, you know, I have. I thought this was a pretty interesting year. Uh, Howard Cosell is a, certainly somebody that I'm very interested in. There are two books I read that I really liked. Uh, the first full-blown uh, biography of him by Mark Rabowski called mm-hmm. Cosell, and then uh, a, an academic named John Bloom, a rather rigorous and interesting uh, analysis of Cosell. It's called There You Have It, uh, of how his ethnic identity shaped him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, CBS uh, correspondent Jim Axelrod uh, wrote In the Long Run, and I, I tend to not be interested in other people's running memoirs, mm-hmm. um, but uh, the way he interrelated this with the blind ambition of the TV correspondent and the damage uh, to a family was interesting. Uh, Dan Barry's Bottom of the 33rd, uh, an interesting look at the longest minor league game ever played. Mm-hmm. Gerald Early's A Level Playing Field, which is a collection of his speeches and essays, I like. And then what I'm reading right now, an incredibly cranky book called The Whore of Akron mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, by the magazine writer Scott Rabb, which is his very angry search and not finding it of LeBron James's soul. So you've been in sports writing for, for 50 years, and from that list it's clear that you still... Uh, you still follow sports. You still read about sports. So what still what still draws you to read about sports and to follow sports? Well, you know, I I I, I fall in and out, Bruce. I mean, there are years that I you know I had a television, a PBS show on aging, uh, and that that took me in another direction. Uh, I've done a lot of other things, but I'm always kind of drawn back because I I've never found anything that was such a window. I mean, talking about. Penn State, uh, we're really talking about America. We're talking about transparency. We're talking about uh, higher education. We're talking about righteousness. We're talking about adult responsibilities. Uh, We're talking about power. We can top off the book list with Bob Lipsight selections. You've already heard about the books by Dan Barry and Scott Rabb. The two biographies of Howard Cosell are Mark Rabowski's Howard Cosell, The Man, The Myth, and The Transformation of American Sports, published by Norton. And John Bloom's There You Have It, The Life, Legacy, and Legend of Howard Cosell, published by University of Massachusetts Press in 2010. Jim Axelrod's memoir, published by Farrar strauss Duroe, is titled In the Long Run, A Father, A Son, and Unintentional Lessons in Happiness. And the collection of essays by Gerald Early is titled A Level Playing Field, African American Athletes, and the Republic of Sports, published by Harvard University Press. My sincere thanks to Bob Lipsight and to all my guests for taking time to offer their book list recommendations and for their comments on the past year in sports. If you have questions about any of the books that were mentioned, or simply wish to make a comment, you can visit the Facebook page of New Books and Sports, or visit the website, 
newbooksandsports.com and hit the tab marked Pitch at the top. New Books and Sports is going on holiday, but we will be back in January 2012 with a new slate of podcast interviews with the authors of books on hockey, baseball, cycling, soccer, and more. Thank you for listening and enjoy the holidays.